You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Judges 1.1, now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Before we go further, let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word together as a church. Lord, may we learn not only the events of Judges, uh, help us to see how it all works in to uh, the main message of the Bible. Help us to see why you chose these specific stories to put in and how it applies to us today. And Lord, as we continue throughout the rest of our night and uh, the baptism service and the meetings, we just ask that all could be done for your honor and glory. We trust this to your name. Amen. This can be divided into three sections. You got chapters one and two. You got a big section, chapters three through 16 and then the ending section of 17 through 21. In chapters 1 and 2, really dealing with Israel's failure. Israel's failure. And we're going to see exactly what that failure is in just a little bit. Chapters 3 through 16 is talking about Israel's judges. Oh, there it is. He's, he's, he's watching the live stream. That's fine. You're just going to have a little uh, delay there. So uh, Israel's judges from chapters 3 to 16. And then Israel's corruption from chapters 17 through 21. So Israel's failure, Israel's judges, Israel's corruption. And this book is filled with stories that back up exactly what Joshua told the people before he died in Joshua 24, 19. So you remember right before Joshua died, he brings forward that there's a choice. You can either obey God and drive out the Canaanites, or you can disobey God and you can serve other gods. And the people reply, oh, God forbid that we would turn away from the Lord and serve other gods. We will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And do you remember Joshua's reply to them? He comes back and he says, ye cannot, ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is holy. Remember, he's not trying to be discouraging to them what he is bringing out is even the best of men are sinners and deep within our hearts is a problem that must be solved and that cannot be solved by the law okay and we're we're getting ahead of ourselves but you know who the answer to that to that question is to that problem is it's jesus christ that is who they need he's not trying to discourage them from worshiping god showing them that even the best of men are sinners that fail to love and serve god in the way that they should the people come back, though, and they say, no, we are going to serve the Lord. In this book, though, we're going to see story after story of Israel failing to make the choice that they said they would make to Joshua. And these repeated failures lead to a tragic ending of the book of Joshua. I mean, it's heartbreaking to say the least. So let's just get right into it here. Chapter 1. We read in chapter 1, verse 1, Israel is starting off on a really good note. I mean, they're seeking counsel from God. They're asking which tribe should go up to start driving out the Canaanites first. God immediately answers them, and he says, Judah shall go up. And what Judah is going to start doing is beginning the battles and taking these cities. Whether it's in their lot of inheritance or not, they're going and they're helping and starting because they're the largest tribe. They were the warrior tribe. And in verse 2 through 20, Judah begins to fight. 
Simeon joins along with him because, remember, Simeon was a part of Judah's inheritance as far as the land was concerned. And the verses are filled with all of these victories that Judah is gaining over the Canaanites. Victory in Bezek, victory in Jerusalem, victory in Hebron along with Caleb. And uh, there's pretty much a repeat of, of Caleb's story here in the, in the chapter. Uh, really cool note here in verse 16, there's a, there's a group of people called the Kenites, which is Moses' family. So you remember when Moses went to Midian, he married Jethro's daughter, and Jethro was the priest of Midian, and now how they're described here is the family of, or the Kenites, okay? So they're in, they have come along with the uh, Israelites, and that's a callback to a story begin, uh, beginning earlier. Um, so in chapter one, great victories, victory in Debir, victory in Zabath, victory in Gaza, victory in Ascalon, victory in Ekron, just everywhere. I mean, things are going very well to begin with. Israel's obeying God, God, and they're seeing victory because of it. In verse 19, it says, the Lord was with Judah. Unfortunately, here is where we see a shift in the story. Look in the rest of verse 19. The Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. And the rest of the chapter, we see tribe after tribe failing to drive out the Canaanites from the land. Verse 21, Benjamin does not drive out the Canaanites from Jerusalem. Now, don't get confused. In verse 8, it says that they captured Jerusalem. So Judah did go into Jerusalem, captured the city. It was only up, and apparently it was only up to the tribe of Benjamin to go in and drive the Canaanites out, and they just didn't. 22 through 29, Ephraim and Manasseh, they don't drive the Canaanites out. What do they do? They put the Canaanites to tribute. No, we're not going to drive you out. We're going to keep you here so that you can pay us money. Verse 30, Zebulun doesn't drive them out. 31 and 32, Asher doesn't drive them out. Naphtali doesn't drive them out. And 33, Verse 34, Dan doesn't drive them out. In fact, the Canaanites drive Dan up into the mountains, and that's where they find their living. I want you to take that little nugget of information that Dan is now up in the mountains because they won't drive out the Canaanites, and I want you to take that, and I want you to put it in your pocket for later. Okay? Chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appears and confronts Israel. Look in verse 1. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and, I, and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. See what God's about to say here? And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not what? Ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Have you ever had your parents ask you that before? What made you do that? Sometimes my dad would just say, everyone stop, look for it, look for it. Johnny's lost his mind, help him find it. God is basically coming up and saying, what, why? Why are you doing this? Why have you not just simply obeyed Judah? If you would have obeyed, it doesn't matter that they have chariots of iron. They would have been gone. Dan, you wouldn't be up in the mountains right now if you just would have obeyed. Ooh, okay, let's stop. So the people repent and they build an altar to remember this lesson in verse 4 and 5. And chap um, chapter 2, verse 6 through 10, kind of gives a recap 
of what happened with Israel under the leadership of Joshua and what brought him up to this point. And what it's bringing out is that under the leadership of Joshua, there was order. There was obedience to God's word that led to victory and that led to them being brought into the land in the first place. But as soon as Joshua dies and all of Joshua's peers and his generation dies, everything begins to fall apart. Look in verse 10. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Now, do you remember that the older generation was commissioned to do one big thing to the younger generation? Teach to them what the Lord has done for you. Now here's a generation, they have no clue. Absolutely no clue. Parents, teach your children what you learn from the Bible. If you do not teach them, they have no, they're going to have no clue. No clue at all. Verse 11 through 13, Israel begins to worship Canaanite gods. Don't read over that. Israel begins to worship Canaanite gods. So what is God going to do? Well, he's going to bring punishment in verse 14 and 15. And he brings this punishment by allowing the Canaanites, the heathen nations, that they were supposed to drive out. The punishment is now, well, the Canaanites that you left in the land are going to oppress you. And the Bible says they spoil the Israelites. Look in uh, verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hands of those that spoiled them. So even in wrath, God is kind. Even in judgment, God is merciful. What does the Bible mean by a judge? We're picturing Judge Judy? No, okay. Not a, it's not a legal matter. She wasn't going around in a black road bopping everyone on the head with her gavel. Why are you doing what you're doing? A judge is, literally means to exercise authority, okay? Um, exercise authority of what? The law, right? So exercise authority, and really they were military leaders. The judges were military leaders whom God would use to deliver his people from their enemies. And people ask, well, why military? Well, what, what, were Israel, what was Israel supposed to be doing in the first place? Driving out the Canaanites. You're going to need a military leader in order to do that. So in verse 17 through 23 of the chapter, the God through the author here is going to basically give us a snapshot of what the entire book is filled with. So what we have seen is we've seen Israel's sin. They begin to worship Canaanite gods. They become oppressed by the Canaanites that should not be there. But then God raises up a judge. And in verse 17, the author of the book, God, the, the Holy Spirit, basically tells us, just heads up, this is not going to be the last time that this happens. In fact, this is a pattern that is going to be repeated a dozen times throughout the rest of the book. Israel sins, they're oppressed by their enemies, they repent or they cry out unto the Lord, God raises up a judge, Israel finds victory and rest, the judge dies, Israel sins. And the entire cycle repeats. But look in verse 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned, they sinned again, and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. You know, a rubber ball, you have a rubber ball, and you hold it up here, and you drop it. It's going to bounce back. But with every bounce, it's only going to bounce up lower. It's never going to reach the height that it was dropped from. 
So what you see, the, don't picture judges as a drop and then they come all the way back and then they drop and they come back. It's not a roller coaster here. It is a drop of the ball and then they bounce back up but never as close to God as they were the generation before. And it keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. And with every single drop, it gets worse and worse and worse until you read two stories at the end of the book where you can't even tell the Israelites apart from the Canaanites. It is a slow spiral down away from the Lord. Chapter 3, God basically says, because you will not drive the Canaanites out, fine, I'll leave them there. I'll leave you to your devices, and I'm going to use those Canaanites to prove you. And what is he doing? He's bringing out the choice that Joshua gave to them in 2415. You have a choice now. You can either choose to obey me and serve me, or you can choose to mingle with these Canaanites that are left among you and worship their gods. And what do the people do? Verse 6 and 7, they start intermarrying with the Canaanites, and they start worshiping their idols. And this leads to our first story of the cycle beginning again. So you have Israel sinning by intermarrying and idolatry. You have oppression that comes through a man named Chushan Risatheum. Yeah, uh, they repent, takes them eight years, but they repent in verse 9. A judge comes up, Othniel. Victory comes, rest for 40 years, and then the judge dies. What happens after the judge dies? Israel sins. Yes, verse 12, they sin again. Oppression comes, this time through Eglon. The kids learned about Eglon this morning. Eglon was a very fat man, the Bible says. Yes. Oppression comes. Repentance ends up coming in verse 15. 18 years later, takes them 18 years to repent. A judge comes up. Two judges, actually. Ehud, or Ehud, and Shamgar. Victory and rest for 80 years. The judge dies. What happens when the judge dies? Chapter 4, verse 1, Israel sins again. Israel did evil again. Oppression comes, this time through Jabin and Sisera. You, were, you recognize that name, Sisera. Repentance ends up coming in verse 3. 20 years it takes for them to repent. Here comes the judge, Deborah. Deborah is the judge. She's a prophetess there. She actually recruits Barak, and then uh, they gain victory uh, with the help of a lady named Jael, who, by the way, is a Kenite. And how to remember, so one of Moses's and Sisera believes, well, she's not an Israelite, so she's going to side with the people in power at the time. Ooh, bad mistake. Bad mistake, Sisera. She's got, a, she's got a nail and a hammer. Run. And I mean, just straight into the ground. Okay. And then eventually Jabin is defeated. There's victory and rest uh, for 40 years. And then chapter 5 contains a very interesting song. So remember, with every drop and bounce back, and we hear, oh, victory and rest, good. No, things keep getting worse and worse and worse. And throughout all these stories, you're going to catch glimpses. When you read it, you're thinking, wait a second, why? Why did that happen? Well, things are getting worse and worse and worse. Sin damages you. Gentlemen, have you ever burned yourself, or ladies, have you ever burned yourself really bad, and it hurts, but if the burn is bad enough, and you go to that place, you don't feel it anymore. Sensitivity is lost, and the Bible talks about sin searing people's conscience like a hot iron, and you keep 
sinning and sinning and sinning, not listening to the Holy Ghost. Now, yes, you confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What does Jesus say? Go and sin no more. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 2, 1. These things write I unto you that ye sin not. Just because you can confess your sins and the Lord is faithful and just to forgive your sins, that's not a license to go and sin. So it keeps bouncing. So here, here we see this. We see the song. We see the song in chapter five, and it's all about God's goodness and Israel's failure and uh, the victory that comes from God through Deborah and Barak. And then Deborah and Barak, they're singing the song. They call out some tribes. Some of it is good in verse eighteen, and they're basically saying Zebulun and Naphtali volunteered and they came and helped us against Jabin and Sisera. But then she mentions Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, Dan and Asher. And she basically says, they did nothing to help us. They did absolutely nothing. They refused to join in in the fight. What's going on here? Aren't we supposed to help each other? Wasn't it all their job? Wasn't it all their duty and their responsibility to drive out the Canaanites? And they see a couple of their people, being, uh, their other tribes being oppressed. Some come in and volunteer and help, but you have a bunch of them saying, no, no, we're not going to do anything about that. We'll just stay oppressed. Problem. Things are getting worse and worse. Chapter 6 through 16 only covers four judges. The more popular judges, the judges that we really know. Um, so we're not going to spend too much time on them, but I want you to notice that the pattern continues. Chapter 6, verse 1, Israel sins again. Oppression. Through Midian, they're destroying their crops. Israel flees up to the caves and the dens. They can't even be down in their houses anymore. And the Midianites start moving into the lands, the Bible says, as grasshoppers for multitude. There's millions of people in the promised land. Repentance, in verse 6, after seven years, oh, seven years, not too long, seven years of brutal siege, where they're burning all their crops, no food, no nothing. Gideon, who is the judge, can only find a space to thresh some wheat hidden in a wine press. That's how bad it is. But the judge does come up. A prophet comes in chapter, uh, or in verse 7 through 10, and he reminds Israel of why they're in this position. He says, God showed you his might by bringing you out of Egypt. He gave you Canaan. He warned you about idolatry, but you have not obeyed. Gideon is there. You see Gideon's call. Remember how an angel appears to him and there's a sign with uh, cooking the, the, uh, the bread on the rock and then Gideon gets his first assignment. He is supposed to go to his father's uh, little worship center and tear down the altar to Baal and replace it with an altar to God. Gideon is not the most valiant person, so he waits to do it at night. He ends up doing it, and he tears down the altar to Baal. He puts up a new altar to God, you know, the real one. And the men of Israel get mad. Come up to Gideon's father and say, we know that your son tore down our false altar and built up a real one. Why would he do that? Things are getting worse and worse. I love what Gideon's father says. Uh, in, let me see here, I haven't turned at all. We're in chapter, uh, 
let's see, chapter 6. Joash is his name. And he basically says, are you going to stand up for Baal on his behalf? You're the one who chose to worship him. Why don't you let him plead for himself? And so Gideon gets a new nickname, Jerubal. I would keep Gideon, right? Jerubal, which means let Baal plead. But that's Gideon's nickname from now on. And look in verse uh, 31, and you can see how Joash uh, said that to him. In verse 33 through 40, you have Gideon's first battle preparations. He gets help from Asher. He gets help from Zebulun. He gets help from Naphtali. What is this pointing out? Israel does well with a leader. When there's leadership, Israel does well. As soon as the leader is gone, oh, we have problems. We're starting to see a pattern that's going to lead into 1 Kings and 2 Kings, right? 1 and 2 Samuel, Chronicles. Israel does well with the leader. He prays, and there's the sign of the fleece where it's dry one day and wet everywhere else, and then wet one day and dry everywhere else. And then chapter 7 is Gideon's great victory with the 300 men against the millions and millions of Midianites that have come into the land. And what does it teach us? It wasn't by might. It was by obedience, and it reminds us of Jericho in many ways. God uses men who are willing to fight. He says, if you're afraid, go home, and a bunch of men leave. And then he uses men who are ready to fight, the ones who keep their wits about them the entire time because the Midianites aren't far and could attack at any time. And then 300 left, put down your spear, here's a pitcher, put down your sword, here's a trumpet, and put down your shield, here's grandma's vase. And they use those three things, and God brings great victory. Chapter 8, Ephraim complains. Gideon finds victory over the Midianites. Now, there's still two kings at large, Zeba and Zalmunna. Got to find Zeba and Zalmunna, okay? Because without killing them, the Midianites are still in control. But the Ephraimites get mad because Gideon called them very late in the battle. Uh, in the end of chapter 7, I think in verse 24 and 25, he calls Ephraim, they do come and help. And at the very end of the battle, they actually capture and kill two Midianite princes. Very good, very good victory. But Ephraim gets all mad. Why didn't you call us sooner? So uh, it gets to the point where they're arguing back and forth. And Gideon basically says, look, you accomplished more at the end of the battle than all the rest of us did throughout the entire battle because you killed those two princes. Ephraim settles down a little bit, but put this one in your left pocket, it's going to come back again, okay? So, we still got to find Zeba and Zalmunna, and all through four, uh, verse 4 and through 13, we're talking about the capture of Zeba and Zalmunna, and then in verse 14 through 17, Gideon does something very questionable, okay? As he is... As he is pursuing after Zeba and Zamuna, they're tired. There's only 300 of them. They're trying to find these two Midianite kings. And they come through two cities, one called Succoth and one called Penuel. And in both of those areas, Gideon asked these men, would you give us provision? Would you give us something to eat and something to drink so that we can keep on pursuing after Zeba and Zamuna? And the people come back and say, do you have him captured yet? And Gideon says, no then we're not going to help you. Why? Because what if Gideon fails to capture Zeba and Zalmunna, and then Zeba and Zalmunna still are in charge, they take charge again, let's say Gideon dies or he loses in battle, and then they find out that Succoth and Penuel were complicit or were uh, aiding and abetting Gideon, this vigilante, 
oh, that's not good. So Gideon tells them, when I find Ziba and Zalmunna, I'm coming back here, and I'm going to take care of you. And for the elders of Succoth, Gideon basically tortures them, and he kills the men of Penuel. Things are getting worse and worse. He does end up finding Ziba and Zalmunna. He kills them. And as soon as that great victory has come, they want to make Gideon king. And we see in verse 23, look in verse 23 of uh, chapter 7. Or I'm sorry, chapter 8. Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Amen. Yes. Good. Great answer, Gideon. But I will do something. Oh, Gideon, what are you doing? says, no, I'm not going to take the kingship, but take off all your golden earrings and give them to me. And he melts them down and he makes his own Levitical ephod and the people start worshiping it. He ends up having 70 sons and one of those sons he names Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? My father is king. So he doesn't take the kingship, but he starts to like the idea. Gideon dies. What happens after the judge dies? What's the next thing in the cycle? What happens after the judge dies? Sin, yup, look in chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Came to pass as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel turned again and went to whoring after Balaam and made Baal Berith their God. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Chapter 9, Gideon's son Abimelech basically assumes the kingship. He's not a judge. He was not appointed by God. He just goes up to the men of Shechem and says, why don't you back me? And in order to, to bolster his kingship, he murders all 70 of his brothers, except for one named Jotham, not for a lack of trying. Jotham just escapes. And Jotham ends up giving a prophecy, and he says, Abimelech is going to be the end of Shechem, and Shechem is going to be the end of Abimelech. You are both your worst enemy, and the prophecy actually ends up coming true. Chapter 10 leads into this undefined time of judges. You have Tola judging for 23 years, Jair um, judging for 22 years. They both die, and Israel sins again. Verse 6. And it starts listing out all these forms of idolatry. Things are getting worse and worse. If you study these gods, these idols that they are worshiping, it's disgusting. It's horrifying. Verse 10, repentance, because oppression has come through the for the Philistines and the Ammonites. So repentance in verse 10. And notice God's response in verse 11 of chapter 10. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines? You've repented to me a lot of times, and I've delivered you every single time. The Zidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Moanites did oppress you, and ye cried unto me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Yikes. But things are getting worse 
and worse and worse. God is not going to raise up a judge for them. So what does Israel do? Israel says, well, we're just going to find our own. When God chooses a judge, he looks within. Man never would have chosen Gideon, okay? But God looks within. When man chooses a judge, what is he going to look at? He's going to look on the outside. Somebody who looks the part. They need somebody militant. They need somebody strong and brave and intimidating. And there's one man that comes to mind. His name is Jephthah. And Jephthah is talked about in chapter 11. Jephthah's story, he was the son of a harlot, and he was rejected by his family. He's a Manassite. So in Gilead, east side of Jordan, he's rejected by his family because you're the son of a strange woman. So he leaves, kind of goes off into his own little area, and he becomes a mighty man of valor, the Bible says. He knows his way around a sword and a spear, and he kind of assembles this gang of vain or worthless men around him. But when Israel and Gilead especially become oppressed, they reach out to Jephthah. And Jephthah comes back and says, you're coming to me, you hate me. You're the ones who sent me out in the first place. And they say, listen, if you come back and you help us and you deliver us from our oppressors, we'll make you our leader. Ooh, Jephthah likes the sound of that. So he comes in and he starts dealing with Ammon, who in the previous chapter has completely surrounded Gilead, this east, this east side of Jordan. And Jephthah has a little conversation with Ammon. He says, why are you here? And Ammon says, this is our land. And Jephthah knows his history. He says, no, it's not. When we were on our way to the promised land, we asked you nicely to come through your borders. We told you we weren't going to take anything from you. If we used anything, we would pay you for it. You said no. Your forefathers said no. And they came out and attacked us. We won the battle, so the land's ours. Ammon doesn't like that interpretation of history. So there's a fight. And as Jephthah is going up to this fight, he makes this ridiculous vow. And he says, Lord, if you will give me victory over the Ammonites, when I come home to my house, the whatsoever walks out of my house and greets me, I'm going to give it as a burnt sacrifice to you. So I don't know if Jephthah was in the habit of keeping cows in his home. I doubt it. I think Jephthah, what he's saying here is human sacrifice. Jephthah goes, he gains victory, he comes home, and his daughter walks out. His only child, his daughter, walks out of the door to greet him, and he kept his vow. Exactly. I see you, the, the, the heads are going into the hands. What? This is God's people? These are God's people? The holy nation, the peculiar people, what's going on here? Things are getting worse and worse and worse. Chapter 12, let's bring out of our left pocket. What do we have in our left pocket? Ephraim, right? Ephraim gets mad again. Why didn't you call us? But it's not good enough just for them to say we're mad at you. Ephraim comes back and says, because you didn't call us, we're going to kill you, Jephthah, and we're going to burn your house down. Nice, nice, yeah. That's what we're supposed to do. Jephthah comes back and he says, I did call you and you didn't come. Civil war. 42,000 Ephraimites die. 
This is God's people. Chapter 13, oh, uh, Jephthah, Jephthah dies. We know what happens after that, right? And then there's this long list of judges. Each one from uh, chapter 12, verse 7 through 15, look at all those judges. Each one marks another cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, judging, victory, sin, Okay, sin, oppression, repentance, judging, victory, sin, oppression, repentance, judging, victory, each one being worse and worse and worse. Chapter 13 through 16. Up until this point, the cycle has looked the same, right? But I want you to notice on this one, something's missing. Notice with me what is missing. Call it out when you hear it. Israel sins in chapter 13, verse 1. Children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. Oppression comes from the Philistines. A judge is raised, Samson. What are we missing? No repentance. Read all throughout chapter 13. No repentance. Have you noticed with almost every cycle, it has taken longer and longer and longer for Israel to repent? The first time with Chushan, Rizatham, eight years. Next time with Eglon, 18 years. Jabin and Sisera, 20 years. Midian, seven long years of siege, eventually leading to 40 years of oppression by the Philistines and not one cry of repentance from God's people. Chapter 13 through 16 covers the story of Samson, an incredible story of a Nazarite judge who step-by-step step breaks his Nazarite vow. He does end up bringing victory over the Philistines, but only at the cost of his life. And it's from here, believe it or not, things get worse. Chapter 17, you have a man named Micah, and he admits to stealing his mother's silver. Mom, it was me. I stole your silver. And she comes back and says, well, bless your heart, son. I'm going to reward you for your confession. Let's make two idols out of the silver that you stole. So we're going to go, and we're going to melt down some of the silver, and we're going to make a molten image, and then we're going to use the rest of the silver to buy a graven image. And it's not just two images in Micah's house. In fact, Micah has a separate house just for his idols and his images is, and his images is, wow, and his images and his worship. He even consecrates his own son to be his priest. Here's just a hint. That's not the way it works. If we're going to worship God, we're going to worship him his way. The Bible says worshiping God must be done in the beauty of holiness. Failing to do so is false worship. And it may look the part, it may have all the same elements, but it's not real. It's like playing dress up when you're a kid. And it's really cool dress up when you actually, you know, you have the badge like the police officers do, and you spray paint your squirt gun black, and you have the radio that's up here on your shoulder. I mean, you really look the part, but sorry kid, it's not real. You're not a real police officer. Micah is playing fake worship. So when he comes into contact with an actual Levite, he hires him. Oh, wow, this will help me make, this will help me make believe worship even better. I'm going to hire a Levite. And instead of the Levite looking back to him and saying, no thanks, I can go up to the actual tabernacle of the God of God's and serve him whenever I please in Shiloh, the Levite basically looks back and says, how much am I getting paid for it? Sure. And stays. 
So this entire chapter shows us just how bad things are. Micah robs his mom. She rewards his confession with what she believes to be the worship of God, but it's actually a blatant rejection of the first commandment that God gave to them. A Levite agrees to serve a man in his idol temple rather than serving God in his temple at Shiloh. All the while, Micah is attempting to maintain a relationship with God while in every way violating the commands of God. Why is this happening? Well, verse 7 gives us a little glimpse into all of why this is happening. Chapter 17, verse 7. And there were, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, where is it at? I lost it. I wrote wrote down the wrong one. Verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18. Right pocket. What do we have in our right pocket? Dan. Very good, okay? Dan couldn't drive out, couldn't drive out, didn't drive out the Canaanites. Canaanites actually drove them up into the mountains. Well, we're not going to live there anymore. And instead of doing what they're supposed to do and actually driving out the Canaanites, they just decide to move. And on their move, they run into Micah's priest. What are you doing here? Oh, this guy hired me. Can you do us a favor? Can you ask the Lord if he's going to bless us on our journey? And the Levite doesn't even budge. He just goes, yes, sure, go, go. Yeah, the Lord is with you. You're going to prosper in your way. So Dan just goes on and he goes on and he finds this city called Laish. Peaceful place, nothing wrong with it. Innocent people, filled with innocent people. And they just claim it for their own. But before we do that, we're going to come back to Micah's house because we really liked all those idols that they had. So they just start stealing Micah's idols. And the Levite comes and says, what are you doing? Why are you stealing these idols? And they say, shut your mouth, and why don't you just come with us? Would you rather be the priest to one man or to an entire tribe? Ho, 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 ho. Okay, how can I help steal the idols? They steal the idols, they start going. Micah finds out, pursues after them, comes after them, and look at what he says in verse 24 of verse 18. Ye have taken away my gods which I made. If you have to make a god, it's not a god. You have taken away the idols which I made, and the priest, and ye are gone away. And what have I more? Seriously? What have I more? The tribe of Dan looks back and says, you keep your mouth shut. If you say one more word, we're going to kill you and we're going to kill your entire family. Really nice. Really nice. Dan proceeds to Laish and slaughters the town. Renames it to Dan. The Bible points out, oh, and by the way, as soon as they do that, the first thing they do is they set up Micah's idols and they start worshiping it. And the Bible says in verse 31, The entire time this is going on, and they set them up Micah's graven image, which he made, all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. What is God saying? They're doing all of this without God's help, without God's guidance, disobeying God completely, worshiping other gods when they had the opportunity the entire time to listen and serve and obey the real God. Chapter 19 is a horrific story of Benjamin's wickedness, and it shows moral depravity, their godless attitude, and the devastating effect that sin has upon Israel. It's described in verse 30 as the worst sin in Israel's history. Look at verse 30. It was so that all that saw it said, 
there was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider of it, take advice, and speak your minds. You know what the Bible is saying? Look at how far God's people have come. It's to the point now where God's people are just as bad as Egypt. Chapter 20, you have a terrible civil war between Benjamin and the rest of Israel. Three battles in the civil war. Benjamin actually wins the first two. The tribe that just committed the worst sin in Israel's history wins the first two. See, in the past, God has always given victory over wickedness, but now all of Israel is just as wicked. Where's the victory going to come from? Israel wins the third and final battle, and they run Benjamin down until there's only 600 men left. They kill everybody. The women, the children, the cattle, everything. There's 600 men left in Benjamin. And uh, those 600 men, they run and they hide for four months. And in chapter 21, after the heat of the battle, they assemble at the house of God in Shiloh. That's a good thing, right? Well, they're not there to worship. They actually make another ridiculous vow. And they say, because of what Benjamin did, no other tribe of Israel will ever give a wife to the men of Benjamin. But then they start feeling bad. They start feeling remorse for what they've done. And they start saying, Lord, how have we gotten this far to the fact, to the point where one of our tribes is pretty much completely cut off. And they come to this understanding that if no wives are provided to Benjamin, the tribe is eventually going to go extinct. But they can't go back on their vow. So here's the plan. They're all there at Shiloh, and one of them asks, well, is there any one of our group of people, any city of our people that didn't come to this assembly? And somebody says, oh, yeah, there's a city, Jabez Gilead. They wanted nothing to do with this. They didn't show up. Okay, kill them all. Kill the men. Kill the women. Kill the children. Only save the virgin girls and give them to the men of Benjamin. And that's exactly what they do. But there's only 400. So there's still 200 men left that need a wife. Well, we still can't go back on our vow, so what do we do? Here's the idea. There's a feast to the Lord once every year. And on the way to the feast to the Lord, the virgin girls of all of the tribes kind of go up there to be a part of this ceremony. Which, by the way, I read Genesis, Exodus, I don't see that ceremony anywhere. Um, so here's what the leftover 200 men of Benjamin are going to do. You're going to hide along the way, and as they walk by, find one you like, kidnap her, and run. Yeah. Because that's a win-win, right? That's a win-win. Benjamin gets their wives, and technically we didn't break our vow. Because we didn't give it to them by choice. They took them by force. And that's how the book of Judges ends. Chapter 21, verse 25. Would you read that out for me? Chapter 21, verse 25, after that last story. Let's read it together. Ready? Begin. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This is God's people. This is God's people acting this way. The book of Judges is a narrative of how Israel rejected their relationship with their king so that they could serve sin and false gods. 
And they started off so well, didn't they? Man, it was going well. They were obeying, there was victory, and now you can't tell the difference between them and the Canaanites. And notice with me, it all started with just a little compromise. Ah, oh, it's too hard to drive them out. We're not going to do that. Listen, compromise and apostasy doesn't come from life being too hard to stand for right. It comes from our heart being too hard to obey God. So instead, we just do whatever we want. The Bible, all throughout the book of Judges, God never comes back and says, the Canaanites are plaguing you because they're too strong. He comes back to them over and over and says, the Canaanites are plaguing you because you did not obey. If you simply would have obeyed, this would not be going on. But instead of obeying, it was better for the Israelites just to say, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the authority. When I have no authority, there are no rules. I can do whatever is right in my own eyes. That is the world's philosophy. And be warned, Christian, when you follow the world's philosophy, someday you're going to look just like them. What we see in Judges is Israel's failure to obey and serve God, and we're left seeing a huge hole in this nation that can only be filled by one person, the seed of the woman that is going to give them a new heart, the final piece of the covenant promise. And what we're going to find in the next book is that even throughout all of this depravity, God is working to redeem his people, not because they deserve it, but simply because he loves them. And in order to show that love, he's going to tell a love story. Listen, church, the sooner we realize this, the better. It is not easy to live a holy life in a wicked world. Canaanites fight back. Sin fights back. But they must, and they can, be driven out. It's not always going to be easy. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. With God, we have everything we need to overcome the Canaanites. doesn't matter how threatening the Canaanites may be. God promised these Israelites through Joshua, thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and though they be strong. You will drive them out. When I hear a Christian say, it's just too hard to serve the Lord in this world, all I hear is a Christian who says, I've made my choice to serve what I want to do and not serve the Lord. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, what we want to do, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And you notice that pattern of judges? That's our sinful nature. And we still deal with it today. We fall into sin, and sin damages us, and it oppresses us. So we cry out to God. And usually, if we're honest, we only cry out to him when we're in trouble. That is sinful human nature. I have had people since I've become pastor here come to me and say, Pastor, my life is falling apart. I'm losing my children. I've lost my wife. I'm losing my job, and I know it's because I'm living in sin. I need to get closer to God again. Come to church on Sunday. I'll be there. They come one service and never come again. Why? 
because that's sinful human nature. If that's what it takes to get people in church once, I don't want to know what it would take to get people to be faithful. But we sin, it brings oppression every time. But God is faithful. He'll raise up deliverance. He'll bring victory. But then you sin again. And it oppresses you. And over and over and over and over, the cycle becomes, you know why? Because we need a new nature. That's our old nature. Jesus says, I'll give you a new nature where you can have victory. And you won't have to be a slave to sin anymore. And that new nature comes from the grace of God that bringeth salvation. But not only that, it teaches us how to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Is grace active in your life today? You need it. You need it. Not just for salvation, but to live in this present world. With God and his grace, you can have victory. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.